Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Underdog Podcast, where we talk G5 football and only G5 football for Underdog Dynasty. This is episode 37 of the podcast and another edition of the American Athletic Conference. And here we got Joe Talk. This is Joe Serpico. Joey Bro back on the other line. Say what's up, my friend. What's up, everybody? We've got a lot to talk about. College football playoff rankings just came out a couple hours ago. It is also Halloween, so this is, I guess, a special edition of this uh, podcast here. I guess it's a holiday here. Uh, Any kids coming knocking at your door, Joey? Uh, No, definitely not. Yeah, I'm literally just getting home from work, too, so nobody's knocking on my door, and if they do, I've got nothing for them, but brewskis, will they take that? Probably not. Uh, They're missing out. Anyways, so just to give you a quick rundown of what we're going to go through, like I said, the college football rankings just came out, so it's funny to talk about there. Uh, We're going to talk about the rule, or I should say a penalty, that cost the Tulsa a touchdown that in the end ultimately being the points that decided the game. We're going to recap USF's loss. I feel actually kind of bad that I'm putting that third, but we're going to talk about that. There being their first losses in the 12 games. And then we did throw out a little mailbag, and we did get a couple uh, questions, so we do want to answer those, and then we'll preview a couple games of this week. So I guess let's just dive right into it uh, with the with the rankings. I think we are kind of in unison when we say we knew that UCF was probably going to be the highest-ranked team of all the G5 schools based on the record and how they've been just blowing everybody away. But I'm a little bit shocked that they're all the way down there at 18. I thought they would be a little bit closer to where they were in the polls, which was around 14. I'm right there with you. I was kind of surprised to see that they were 18, but I think we've seen in the past that the committee doesn't exactly love group of five teams. They tend to rank them a little bit lower than the AP poll does. doesn't mean it's right, but... Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed if I'm being completely honest that that 18 was low and to have Memphis as 23, even that was a little bit low. Well, here's the thing I'm going to argue here is I see I'm looking at the rankings list right now and there's a couple of these teams that have two losses. <clears throat> and I understand they're coming from the Power Five and that's going to always be the argument here that they're power, you know, the Power Five schools and UCF and Memphis are not. But I'm looking at number 22, which is an Arizona team that – you know, and I hate to play the game where, you know, this team beat that team and that team beat that team, but Houston beat Arizona at Arizona. And Memphis, you know, has been holding their own in the AAC West. Who they are the front runner right now to, to win that side of the conference. So I can make the argument right there that, boom, they should be ahead of them. And then some of these two-loss teams, I understand, like, uh, Mississippi State and USC, they are, you know, playing better competition, but they have two losses. I don't yeah, care. but USC hasn't looked great, though. I think you can make the argument that they're struggling right now, so I, you could easily say USF is better, which I think that was one of my bigger disappointments, was that USC hasn't looked good the last three weeks, and yet somehow they're... I mean, they haven't looked great all season, but the last three weeks in particular, they haven't looked great, and so I think that's kind of frustrating for a, a USF team that looks a million times better than USC does to have them one spot lower than the Trojans. And that was just to bring up USC, but I can just keep going through. Like an Iowa State team, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, they were joking about how Iowa State could be on the bottom of the 
of the Big 12. Now all of a sudden, you know, they're ahead of UCF with a 6-2 and record. Auburn, I can kind of understand because their two losses have come against a pretty solid competition, and they are in the SEC. But I just don't understand that, you know, that Iowa, Iowa State being up there ahead of UCF. It really makes you question, you know, are they watching to see just how dominant the UCF has been, even against, you know, I guess um, maybe they just started watching the games this weekend and saw them beat up on Austin Pay, but they have no idea about them beating up on Maryland and all these other teams they've played this year. Yeah, and I think UCF not playing Georgia Tech because of the hurricane, I think that really hurts them. That was my next point to bring It gives up. you a... Yeah, because, I mean, Miami played Georgia Tech, and they only won by one, pulled out a nail-biter. Miami's undefeated. They're ranked 10th. I'm not saying that UCF would be ranked near where Miami is, but I think that gives them a comparable opponent that you could see how each team did against them, and that could really tell you that I think UCF is closer to Miami than people think, and obviously we have a long ways to go till the end of the season, but at least right now I think that UCF being underrated, which is kind of unfair. It really is. Now, they still would get the uh, mid-major invitation into the New Year's Six Bowl, which, as of what we've seen right now, they'll be taking on Oklahoma State in the Peach Bowl. And the only thing I'm really going to say about that is the last time that a Big 12 team played the Knights in one of those games, it didn't go well for them. Yeah, and the Baylor obviously is very familiar with that loss. I... I when I first saw the peach, the potential Peach Bowl matchup between the Knights and Oklahoma State, I the first thing I thought of was, holy crap, we're going to see a ton of points and defense is going to take a holiday. And is there a better bowl game that you want? I don't remember what the score of the UCF-Baylor game was, but I think it was pretty high scoring and a matchup between Oklahoma State and UCF would be fairly similar. Can't argue that. Uh, that would be definitely two high-scoring teams in that one, or just the way that Oklahoma State's just slinging it around right now. Well, we can. We just talked about the good things, I guess, with UCF. Let's talk about. You know, we have been saying now for a couple of weeks, and I guess now we're kind of right that UCF is the better Florida school. We've been putting them on the top of our power rankings, and then I guess this week they kind of validated itself when. And I'll give you credit. You did call it. The Houston upset over UCF uh, ends, like I said earlier, that 12-game winning streak dating back to last year. And it was also the first time they failed to score 30 points since 2015. Uh, tell me what you saw in that game, or was this more about the Cougars than the Bulls? Yeah, so I've been saying all year that it's difficult for a team, that's a group of five team, I should say, that starts in the top in the top 25 and it's hard for them to stay in the top 25 during the year. Houston had the same problem last year. They started as a top 15 team even, and they obviously didn't finish anywhere near that. It's just difficult for the group of five team that's the favorite to stay the favorite all year. And when you watch the games, I mean, we've, we've talked about it on this podcast for a while now, that the Bulls haven't looked impressive because of what are, it may be a slow start, which they've had plenty of those. There's been plenty of mistakes that they've made that have also contributed to those slow starts. And granted, they picked up the pace, but we've seen that the quality of competition just hasn't been there. So when they finally had another slow start against a solid Houston team, which I think they're better than people are giving them credit for, they couldn't pull it out in the end. And, I mean, give props to Houston. They were on their third, technically their third-string quarterback in Deer King. 
and King <laughs> orchestrated the comeback at late in the game. Uh, USF scored with it was under two minutes. I don't remember the exact time. And King brought them all the way back down the field, scored with 11 seconds to put them up for good, and now we're back to right where you and I have been talking about is USF isn't the best team in the AAC, and it's about time the AP poll got it right. It's just too bad that, you know, they didn't actually still pay attention because they just took the one loss and saw, oh, USF has one loss, so I guess we have to put UCF above them. Yeah, and then to kind of argue what you were just saying there that we've been talking about on the flip side there, We've been talking about the quarterback struggles that Houston's been having, and perfect example, here they go again. It's not like, you know, some teams are kind of been forced to go with their second or third strings. Like Houston has decided to go now to their third string quarterback, and give the kid credit, he, he got the job done. Uh, I've read that he was mostly a wide you know, he was kind of playing both roles, kind of like, um, oh my God, and I can't believe I'm blanking on his name because I loved him last year, the quarterback that was there last year. Greg Ward. Greg Ward. Wow, how can I forget that, too? Yeah, uh, you know, kind of like the same role that he was in his first couple of years at the school, and, and maybe King is something similar to that to complete dual threat and make a, make a name. I mean, he made a name for himself already, seeing how he knocked off a team that, you know, was ranked. And like you said, maybe they were a little bit overhyped with that ranking there. Now, to talk about a a completely different situation here. We're going to talk about a penalty that cost the team and in the end cost them the game. Now, you hate to say it's just one play really did it. Uh, you kind of wrote that up in the uh, power rankings earlier this week. But Justin Hobbs, I mean, there's no one that can catch him. There's probably nobody within 10 yards of him. And even the flag itself is a little bit suspect because he only did it for, you know what I mean? He took like two steps. Two high steps, if you want to call it that. Two or three high steps. He's still got the call. And I know your argument is going to be the rule is there, but I still think it's a dumb rule. If you're going to call the unsportsmanlike for taunting or something like that, there's no way it should take away a touchdown. Make it a 15-yard penalty on the point after, which in college football I think really makes a difference. Or do it on the kickoff, which, again, is another thing that really makes a difference. Well, I guess taking away points makes a difference too, but that's you know scoring plays shouldn't be taken away for a reason like that. I don't think. Yeah, I would agree. I think there's a couple things I want to bring up with that. Is I agree that points should be shouldn't be taken off the board. I think it's a little ridiculous to enforce a penalty when in the end nothing he did mattered. Like there's no one is going to catch him, give him the points. It was unfortunate that it took away four points from them. They got a field goal on that drive instead of a touchdown, and then they lost by four, so it just kind of sucks if you're him. Here's the thing. College football players celebrate every time they score. I mean, if you've watched any games, you've seen them score just... It's almost as ridiculous as the NFL, and does anybody get called for it? No, unless they go extremely overboard. So really, the celebration rule is kind of just needs to go away. I don't think it's really necessary to have it just because it's so inconsistently called. And you saw it didn't really, it wasn't necessary to call it. Obviously, I mean, the rule's the rule. It's there. You should know it. If it's a rule, you should abide by it, whether it's stupid or not. But I've seen refs look at certain players who hush the crowd, players spike the ball, and all that stuff isn't allowed in college football, but yet no one calls that. So I think just getting rid of 
the, those celebration rules altogether is something that the NCAA should look into, but I don't know if that's ever going to happen. The NFL has already gotten rid of those those things. You know, we've seen actually, and it's great, it's great. Yeah, I was just going to say that. You know, some of those some of the dances or celebrations, whatever you want to call them, that we've seen have been fantastic, and there have been not, you know, there's been none that are really like overboard that make you like cringe when you see them. You know. A lot of them have been good ones, like all the baseball ones this time of year with the World Series, which is going on right now. And I think that's, I think that's great stuff, and it's more like a team bonding thing. And I think that's, you know, we've come into an era now because baseball is kind of having the same argument in the past couple of years, where you know celebrating should be has become a thing to do. It's part of the entertainment factor of sports. If you want to do that in you know, baseball, you have these people that are under fire for flipping the bat and whatnot. It's excitement. People, you know, people live for that kind of stuff. That's part of the reason why they like sports. So that's why I think celebrations should be in. And what I was also going to say while you were, I heard you speaking earlier, was just, you know, yeah, he, you could tell he almost knew the rule at the time because he stopped doing it. I think he realized he was like, oh crap, I can't do this. And then the guy or the ref still threw the flag anyways, which I guess in the end really didn't matter. But, again, a rule I think that they should totally get rid of or if you're going to call the penalty for the taunting, do what I said earlier. Don't make so that the points are off the board on a clear scoring play. I mean, he was gone, and it almost took the energy out of the stadium because they would have been up two touchdowns at that point. But it's a shame that... Like we said earlier, in the end of those four points, ended up being the, the the heartbreaker there. And then on the other side for SMU, they became bowl eligible with that win. And they got a huge game this week against UCF that we will talk about a little bit later. But before right. we, well, one ahead. thing I want to mention is, well, one, you're on Tulsa, so you shouldn't be celebrating like that. So knock that off. And two, did we think that, I mentioned this in power rankings, but did we really think that Tulsa was going to be the first team to be eliminated from bowl contention. Oh no, I saw that, and that was a great argument. I could have totally thought it was the other the other two teams that are at the bottom of our power rank, or that are usually been at the bottom of power rankings, and that was ECU and UConn. Right. I didn't think that it would be. To- ah, well, we've talked about it uh, last week. You know, some people thought that they would be a sleeper in the West, and they've been anything but. They're, you know, sitting there at the bottom there. So, like we said earlier, we did take some questions for a mailbag online, and we thought we'd get a lot more questions than we got, to be honest. We only got a handful. One was about how the AAC would fare in the college football rankings, and I think we could see now that the top two teams for the G5 schools do come out of that, and we just brought them up earlier. That was UCF and Memphis. Uh, Another one of the questions was about potential coaches on the move, and we did speak about that quite in depth a little bit last week, but there has been some new news since then that I guess that we could talk about, and we said last week that Scott Frost is a potential candidate to be someone on the way out, and now there's this news that Florida, well not news, it's been confirmed that Florida has now fired their coach, so there's obviously all the links to Scott Frost going to Florida, seeing as how it's not that far of a drive. Do you agree with me in the sense that, yes, okay, Nebraska is probably a dream job because of that was his alma mater, but the better job right now would be Florida for Scott Frost? Yeah, I think if you ask anybody, you, they would agree with you that Florida is the better landing spot 
just as a program in general. I would agree. I, I don't. The connection with Nebraska is obviously there, and I think that it would be a dream job for him. But like you said, Florida, you're going to get your well, and Frost knows this because he's in the state of Florida. You have better access to players. You don't have to travel as far to get better talent. Whereas Nebraska, he's going to have to travel far to recruit and convince players to come to Nebraska. I know they have tradition there, but right now it's just better to be at Florida. However, if he does go there, goes to Florida, I should say, he's got a lot of work to do. Florida hasn't had a good offense in forever. So he there's a lot of problems that he would have to deal with right away. And I, he's already addressed it, that he's focused on UCF right now, which is obviously he's going to say that. He's not going to tell anybody really what he's actually doing, as we saw with Houston and Tom Herman last year. But like you said, Florida is definitely the better job than Nebraska. It's one of those things where he's going to have one eye on UCF, but like keeping his other eye on UF or even Nebraska for the matter. You brought up a great point about the whole recruiting factor, and I do think that's part of the reason why Florida just makes more sense. It's you, know, you brought up the tradition, which I think I don't think kids these days care about tradition like you know they once did. I could see kids you know going to say a, a UCF because they want to be part of the you know that new era of football. Or I can see guys going to a school just for a you know a certain style of system, like we saw with Chip Kelly when he was there. People would just go to Oregon just because of him, and you're not seeing that now with Oregon just because he's no longer there. Uh, just personally, I think that that Florida job is the ideal spot for him, just because you just mentioned the recruiting makes it so much easier. And here's another argument I I kind of wanted to make so. We've been already kind of been talking about recruiting amongst ourselves because uh, there's going to be a national signing day coming up shortly, in a couple of weeks actually, and we will dive into that once that gets a little bit closer. But one of those things where if you are Frost, and right now you are at Central Florida, but you do kind of have an eye on the Florida gig, what do you say to a recruit at this circumstance? Do you tell him, all right, you're going to be at a Florida school, you do know that, but you wait and see where I end up in a couple of weeks? Like, how do you see that scenario playing out? Well, one, I don't think they're recruiting the same players or the same type of player. I think when you're at Florida, you're recruiting those four and five stars versus UCF. It's a long shot if you get a four or five star. I don't think Frost, I mean, there might be a handful of three stars that he takes with him. And I, even if he does, though, he's not going to, he's going to keep it, he's going to play close to the chest. He's not going to say, oh, by the way, there might be a chance. Like, he's not going to tell a recruit that. He would tell his assistant coaches before he would tell a recruit or even hint at something to a recruit. So I think he does his best to go about his business and keep everything as normal as possible, and if something comes up, then it does. I think he obviously will go through the necessary steps to take the job if he wants it, but coaches in general don't like to stir up any more controversy than they need to, so he's not going to say anything that's that tips his hand at all, especially not to recruit. Now, another coach that's been a little bit linked 
to Florida. It's the one that used to be assistant there at one time. And that's Charlie Strong, who's in his first year at USF. Do you see that move being a possibility, or does he stay home where he's at right now? No, I don't. I know he has the connection. But I, I mean, I agree with you, but I just kind of just bring it up for the debate here. Right, yeah. And I think with how things are going at USF, he has to prove that he can get back on the right track. Obviously, the Texas job did not go well, and the job before that at Louisville did, but I think he needs to show that he can get some consistency at a, a new job before he moves on to Florida. And I just don't, I don't know. I, personally, I just don't think it's a great fit for those two. Yeah, he's a defensive mind that will continue that tradition that they have, but right now I think he's a first-year coach at USF, and they're just looking for something new and something fresh, like a like a Scott Frost or even like a Mike Norvell or even name keeps coming up is Dan. I mean, there's so many options that are coming up. So it's hard to sell which, which coach is going to be the favorite and maybe strong is high on their list. But personally, I just don't think that's the way that they should go. Agreed. I, I don't think they will go that route either. I just wanted to bring it up because it is a, a guy who did once coach there. And there are some people saying that could be a link I just don't see it just because of the fact of what you just mentioned. He still has to kind of prove himself once again to say. And then the other guy, just to, you kind of brought him up, was Norvell. Uh, Some people are kind of linking him to the Tennessee job, which is, again, there's nothing official there. I mean, we talked about it last week. It's really, I think, is going to come down to how both coaches, to be honest, both being Norvell and Frost, see how they finish out the season to see whether they're going to end up with new jobs next season. But let's go a little bit forward with where our last question was, and this was a good one, I thought. It was a topic about who would right now be our winner for a player of the conference or play of the year of the conference, whatever we call it. We did this a few weeks ago with some midseason awards, and then when we did that show, I did say, I said, maybe next week we're going to change our minds. And I think a couple of weeks later we have changed our mind. But the question really was, now that Quentin Flowers lost a game, does that put Riley Ferguson in the front runner of the Player of the Year discussion? And I'm going to, I'm going to say that it's still a three-team or three-team race or three-person race, to be honest. And that is between Riley Ferguson and Quentin Flowers, and I still want to keep throwing Mackenzie Milton in the mix because I still think what he's doing is impressive leading this team. Of the three, do you agree with my friend Kudabal over there that Riley Ferguson is the front runner right now? If I'm being completely honest, I don't think Flowers was ever the front runner this year. He he was in the preseason because we obviously thought he was going to either replicate what he did last year or do better. But I don't think he ever had control over that top spot, I should say. So I think it's always been between Ferguson and Milton. Ferguson's thrown more interceptions than Milton has, but he has more touchdowns. And Milton's more of a runner. So I I think it's between those two. And really, I think in the end, because they're fairly comparable, the team that has the better record or so, basically, if... We are headed to do a rematch, then whoever wins the conference title, I think that player deserves to get conference player of the year. 
You can't argue any of that because all these – and I still don't want to throw I, – I do agree with you in the sense that Flowers, I don't think, has been on top since the preseason just because of, we've talked about the slow starts and how we felt that UCF has been a better team this entire time. But I still think that he has a chance to creep into discussion because – we're still waiting for that game against UCF where, say he goes into that game, plays the best game of the season, and then we're right now we're not talking about them being in that in that conference championship game, but that's all it's going to take. It's going to take for them because right now they are, they're still good on the East. Their loss is to a team on the West. So they get that win over UCF, and they will have the uh, edge to represent the East. So I still think the Flowers should be in that discussion. It's all going to – I really don't think it's going to come down to that, that last game for all three guys. Yeah, like you said, he's he's still in the mix. I don't think he was ever eliminated, even though he did, obviously, USF lost this week. But I think it's still going to be, like you said, a three-person three race for that title. Like you said, USF is still very much in the competition. It was lost in the West, but they only, like you said, they only have one loss. So if they beat UCF and UCF's got one loss along with them, then they're going to get in because they have a head-to-head tiebreaker. So it's not really something they need to worry about. Obviously, they need to fix a few things after they lost to Houston, but they still are in control of their own destiny. Yes, they are. They, like I just said earlier, and you just kind of said there, a win in that last week of the regular season, and it's a completely different discussion as far as Flowers goes. He still has a chance. If they could just start one of these games a little bit quicker. He has the potential to, you know, we've seen Ferguson have multiple games with five, six, seven touchdowns. And I think that's what we were expecting about Flowers coming into this year, and we have yet to see that yet. So maybe those games are coming down the roads. He might be a little bit too far behind because Ferguson's got the shot to just keep doing what he's been doing all season long. But that's the beauty about sports. You never know what you're going to get every week. You know, Ferguson, out of nowhere, can have a couple bad weeks. I'm not saying I expect it, but who knows what you're going to get each week. Now, I just kind of want to go through our power rankings real quick. I'm just going to list them. That way we get it on the show before we go through a full slate of conference games this week. And I don't think, uh, the only thing I was going to really mention was, and just to go through it, UCF at one, no shock there. Memphis at two, again, no shock. Three, I had, we have USF. But the reason why I kind of wanted to bring this up was just more because, at first you wanted to put Houston there, but I wasn't ready to go that far just because of the fact, still not on board with Houston's fact that they lost three games so far this year. I think my thinking with that is Houston, to me, is starting to figure things out versus USF has just been hanging on. And I think now I'm curious to see how they respond to one loss. They could very well fall into the trap of being frustrated with the one loss and thinking that, oh, maybe our season's not going how it's supposed to go. So that was my thinking. Obviously, if you look at the resumes, USF should be ranked higher than Houston, but I think Houston could be a very dangerous team towards the end of the year. See, my also thing is, and we just talked about it a little bit, is we're talking about a Houston team that's on their third quarterback too. Like we know the three teams above them, they've got some, they got studs for quarterbacks. That's why I'm not ready to put Houston at that next level yet. Uh, number five, we have SMU. Actually, we're, we're going to talk about them a little bit because I actually do want to talk about them. They're a team that could they do it this week? Could they? 
shift the nature of the college football playoff rankings. And that's just, yeah, we'll talk about it a little bit. Just let me keep going through. Uh, Navy at number, we got Navy at number six, Tulane at seven, UConn at eight, still at number eight, even despite the blowout loss against Missouri. But that's because Cincinnati was off last week, Temple was off last week, Tulsa, we kind of talked about that debacle there, and then ECU is still ECU, so they're going to be down there. But let's just go through this week's slate. There is a AAC game on Thursday night, and there's one on Friday night, and then, of course, there's Saturday football as well. Thursday night's game is a rematch of last year's AAC, ah, AAC championship. I tried to put the AAC and the ACC in one sentence there. That is... Navy will be traveling to Philadelphia to take on Temple. Like I said, that's a Thursday night game. It's at 8 p.m. on ESPN, so it is going to be under the lights, I guess you could say, just because of the fact it is the rematch of last year's title game. What really, really, really shocks me about this game, Navy is an eight-and-a-half-point favorite on the road. The last time Temple played was against Army. And Army needed a couple passing touchdowns, or a passing touchdown, excuse me, to even make that a game. And yes, Temple lost it. But so Temple's last game was against a triple option team. They've had a week off to prepare against Navy. Eight and a half is a lot of points for a home team. Yeah, I don't know if they're thinking that Temple's not that great this year. And it's funny, I mean, you mentioned the rematch of last year's conference championship game which is it's just weird to think that the hype surrounding this game has died down so much and that has obviously more to do with temple struggles than navies but the eight and a half points maybe is i don't know yeah i don't know where that's coming from temple's not great but i don't think they're that terrible either uh navies played a weak schedule and the, the two teams that they lost to were clearly better than them so that's why it's a little surprising is they have yet to beat anyone where they've been impressive and the, their five wins have come against weaker competition, obviously. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of this game. I think the eight and a half is a little too high and I wouldn't, I probably just stay away from betting on this game if I'm being completely honest, but eight and a half just seems way too high. And after the debacle last week or a couple of weeks ago when it was, I realized that ESPN gave me the wrong line. I made sure of it literally while you were talking there. I was like, maybe I should check this real quick. But nope, it is an eight-point line, which, again, I, I don't get that just because of, like I just said earlier, the Temple played Army pretty close. They've had the week off to prepare for the triple option. Temple's defense has been pretty solid all year long, so it's not been that side that's been the problem. That's been the offense. And heading into this week, we still don't know which quarterback is going into it. I haven't seen any news on whether they're going to go with Lorgan Marchi or, or with Newtile heading into this week. But yeah, you kind of said it earlier. It's kind of a shame that this game doesn't have the same luster. That's why, obviously, ESPN made this a primetime game for them is because of Temple's inefficiencies this year at that quarterback position. And I also think it's important to note that Zach Abbey will be is supposed to, as if things go according to plan, is supposed to be returning from a concussion in this game. But yeah, that that eight point line, you said you wouldn't touch it. 
I'm not even trying to be a, a homer here, but this line screams you got to take Temple to me. You go take it and let me know how that goes. I'm staying away. You don't bet with your heart, so I I, I won't be doing that. You don't bet with your heart. <laughs> um, let's go to Friday night's game, and that is Memphis at 7-1 on the road at Tulsa. Again, that's Friday night at 8 p.m. And I have listed on here, is that game also on ESPN? Because if so, that does shock me a little bit. Is that game also on ESPN? Yeah, it's on ESPN2. ESPN2. I knew I was missing. Ah, that's what I thought, too. I thought it was on ESPN2. All right. It's one of those things. Uh, Memphis is a 12-point favorite. We keep talking about all season long. What is Tulsa? Any game that involves Tulsa, just stay away from betting because you'd have no idea which team you're going to get. Now, Memphis, their defense continues to improve. And Tulsa, like we kind of talked about in our group messages, they look like they are a different team when DeAndre Brewer is on the field. Brewer definitely makes a difference for that team. And last week they had a chance to beat SMU, and they just couldn't pull it, pull it out in the end. And we saw the two games before that when they beat Houston, they followed that up with pretty crappy performance against UConn, which is – Really, the only reason why UConn's eighth in our power rankings. I still don't understand what happened that game. Yeah, I still don't get it. Um, did Brewer play that game? I don't think so. I don't think, I he, think did. he got a few carries and and he got hurt or was already banged up, so he didn't get a ton of work. Yeah, let me see. Because I know Brooks had 164 yards and two touchdowns. I yeah. think it was because Brewer didn't. Yeah, Brewer, Brewer, didn't, Brewer didn't play. So I think that makes a big difference, but. Playing Memphis is going to be a struggle. I don't think they Brooks can. still put up solid numbers there. You know, we right. use that, that argument there, really. Right. I just – Memphis is a completely different offense, and they haven't seen that firepower all year. Besides maybe Toledo at the beginning of the year, obviously Tulane and Navy are, you know, the triple option effect. But the number of playmakers that Memphis has – just is enough for me to take because what's the line? Is it twelve? Yeah, twelve. Uh, yeah, yeah, twelve. It looks yeah. like it's twelve. I mean, I wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me at all to see <laughs> they could win by forty, and I wouldn't be surprised. But like you said, we don't know what kind of Tulsa team we're going to get, so I don't think they're going to win either way. I have confidence in Memphis in their consistency, so I know Memphis will win, but it's just going to be a matter of how much. Yeah, you just kind of said it. I could totally see Memphis winning by 40, and then I could see them winning by four, just because you don't know what you're going to get from Tulsa. Uh, I agree with you in the sense that I do think Memphis is by far the better team, and I really don't see anything on Memphis' schedule that makes me think that, you know, there's, I mean, again, any Saturday, anything can happen, but... I think Memphis has the easier road to get the conference game as opposed to you you know UCF and USF it's I we just argued was going to come down to that last game. But to move on to Saturday, uh the first game of the afternoon is at 12 p.m. and that's a 2 and 6 ECU team on the road at Houston. The game could be seen on the CBS Sports Network except by me, and I'm going to keep bringing that up until CBS Sports Network does that. Uh, Houston is a 24.5-point favorite. 
which I don't think is a shock considering how Houston's coming off their win against USF and then what we have seen from ECU this year. I'm gonna. This is one of those games where now that I'm back to doing the uh, against the spread picks, uh, Houston might be one of those that I'm really considering this week. Well, I'm gonna convince you otherwise. So, oh, so right. do that, please. I like Deer King. I like what he can do, but I think the adrenaline of playing USF and be put into that situation is gonna wear off. ECU obviously is terrible, so. I'm not going to say ECU is going to win because I think that's absurd, but I think King is going to have his struggles. There's no doubt about that. He's going to have a game where he struggles, and it might be this game. It is at home, but I think that 24.5, when I first saw that, I thought that was a little bit high for... Now, he's technically, yes, he is the third-string quarterback, but I think if you look at the three options that they have, he might be the most complete in terms of he's a dual threat, more so than Kyle Postman is. Kyle Allen's not a dual threat. But he's young, and this is really, he hasn't played quarterback more than a handful of snaps before last week. So I think that he's going to struggle a little bit this week. So, again, EC is not going to win. But I think 24.5 is way too high for this game. Now, you follow Houston more than, than I do. Are they handing the reins over to King? It's not like, you know, 1A, 1B, or well, like this, 1A, 1B, 1C at this point. Like, they're just going with King. Well, it, I wish I had an answer for you because I thought that when Kyle Allen struggled that it should be a two-quarterback system where Postma and Allen got split time, and then all of a sudden it was King's going to be taking the reins, and then he took – I mean, Postma played and started the game against USF. So – But they also put up their points, and that's why they made the switch. Well, right, but, I mean, the fact that that he started – I mean, the, the, I think you should know that before the game even starts. Like, you should know what's going to happen. So they put, they put King in, and granted, they only had seven points at halftime, but – he picked it up, I guess, enough where they feel confident in his abilities. I mean, if you watch the game, he's just – he has the ability to escape, which with his offensive line struggling is what they need. So I, I'm, i like, fairly confident that King's going to be the one going forward, but with how Applewhite's handled the quarterback's situation this year, I can't say for sure. That has been a – Interesting situation all season long, to say the least. I agree that King definitely brings something to the offense, and that could be part of the reason why they got that win over USF. It was more of like, oh, hey, who is, you know, they weren't really ready for it, to put it in in that sense. The Bulls just weren't ready. Charlie Strong's game planning for one one guy all week long, and probably in the back of his mind he's thinking, well, if – they're going to go to another quarterback. It's going to be Kyle Allen, but here they go. They bring in this kid King who can run all over the place. So I think that has a lot to do with it, and I agree with you in a sense now. You you talked me out of it. That 24 points with a new quarterback who I said earlier was playing wide receiver not long ago, that's a good argument. Not that I'm saying to take ECU. Yeah, but I just stay away. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. But it could be, you know. 
with I mean, I'm just going on my previous experience with this team. We obviously could see them struggle, but with how I'm feeling about them as a team going forward, which I think they could be one of the better teams in the conference, or I guess when the season, I should say, is over. So, I mean, they could cover the 24.5-point spread, but with what I've seen in the past, I'm just not ready to jump onto that bandwagon yet. Now the team that they knocked off, they being the Cougars, that is the Bulls. We talked about them. They, too, have a large number. They are a 23-and-a-half-point favorite on the road at UConn. That game's at 3.30 on ESPNU. And, again, that's the number that kind of shocks me a little bit just because of the sense of we've talked all season long about USF slow starts. And I'm going to give, and I can't believe I'm about to do this, but I'm going to give UConn a little bit of credit because as of late, they have actually kind of shown that they can score some points. So at 23.5 points at home is a number where, honestly, I could see them keeping it within the three-touchdown difference. I could too, honestly. But I think, yeah, I don't know. It's the defense that, which we thought going into this year was going to be great, that being UConn's, that I I don't know what to make of them anymore. Right, and I think that, obviously, like you said, that's the concern. And is this going to be a hangover game for USF? Are they still going to be dwelling on the fact that they could have won the Houston game, but they couldn't pull it out? It, they're on the road, so that obviously can contribute to that, but that. I think that's what I need to know is are they going to be ready to play against UConn? Are they going to take them seriously? Or are they going to see, oh, well, their defense isn't very good, their offense isn't always consistent, so we can just do whatever we want. They should get back to running the ball after last week. They struggled running the ball against Houston. But it is this, like I said, is this going to be a hangover game where they struggle again. I mean, the line's 23-and-a-half, so do they think, oh, we're just going to go to Connecticut and we're just going to walk all over these guys, and then when things don't go their way, are they going to implode or are they going to figure things out? In my mind, I'm just thinking of those games earlier in the year where I mean, we've talked already a handful of times about this where San Jose State is beating UCF and then there was uh, the other game where they USF or USF, excuse me, yes, USF, where they were tra- where they were trailing early. And then there was the other game where, where I still can't. Was it Austin? Was it Austin Pay? No. Who was the other game where they were down? It was Stony Brook. Stony Brook. That's what it was. Stony Brook, where they were down big. It was another game where I couldn't believe it when you told me that was happening. It seems. Here's the thing. It seems that USF has a problem where they play down to their competition. Coming off a game where you lost, you would think that they wouldn't do that. And honestly, I hope not because I hope that they somehow creep their way back into the uh, – they don't have any shot of obviously being the representative in the uh, NY6 ball, but just to creep themselves back into a better bowl game for themselves. I think this is a game where they should come in and blow UConn out like I just said, all these other games are in the year, I just don't know what to make of them. Like, which team shows up? We know we get in the second half. We finally need to see this team show up in the first half. Right, and I think it's that effect of them thinking that they can just turn on their, uh, their scoring whenever they want. And you never want that as a team because 
we saw what happens against Houston. All year, USF's just, oh, well, first quarter, okay, that's fine. We didn't we didn't start off very well. But we're just going to turn on in the second quarter, third quarter, and then we'll be in a blowout and we don't have to worry about it. Well, what happens when you don't turn it on in the second quarter and the other team is competing with you in the third quarter? You just can't have that mentality. You need to start fast, and you need to blow a Connecticut team that shouldn't shouldn't be competitive with you at all, and you need to blow them out right away and send a message that last week's over and we've moved on and we're ready to compete and we still have a chance to win this conference. And it starts this week. They got to they got to take care of business against teams like this. They can't, like you said earlier, have a, a hangover here. If I was this USF team, if I was a player on that team, I should say, I'd be coming in this game pretty pissed off, looking to send a statement and say, hey, we were better than what we showed last week. And more just because you still want UCF to kind of be looking over their shoulder because, yeah, they're undefeated right now, but none of that's going to matter if they lose that last game in the year. Now, to keep going through, we got two more games left for this week's slate. Uh, the first one is a 2-6 and six Cincinnati team on the road to take on a 3-5 and five Tulane team. That's at 4 p.m. And if I saw right, that's on ESPN3, which I feel bad because this is... These are two teams that, because I follow the conference, I do kind of want to watch just because it's one of those things where, I don't know, like we talked about Tulsa, I don't know what to make with either one of these teams. Cincinnati's been a team that we've talked about all season long where the defense has played where, the offense has been eh, to be frank. I mean, I don't have any other words to really put it. And then on the flip side, Tulane's offense has done pretty well this year with the with both their quarterbacks, and it's been banks for the most part of the season, but Brantley when he stepped in, and we thought better things of their defense, who is just coming off a 30-point loss to Memphis. Yeah, but I think Tulane's been the better, or I should say more consistent team, so if you're really going to compare the two teams, Tulane's been more consistent. They only lost by 60 USF, and yeah, the Memphis loss didn't look great, but we never thought that those two teams were going to be in the same category anyways. They're not. They're just not on the same level right now. At the beginning of the year, I think we we said that if Tulane can make a bowl game, that would be a positive note for them to end on. I think that they can. They play Cincinnati this week, and then they get ECU next week, and then they're just going to have to find a way to steal a game from either Houston or SMU. So it's not... And now that I think about it, that Florida International loss really hurts them. Uh, I think that was their one other opportunity where they could have made it easier on themselves. But like we've discussed all year, Cincinnati's been disappointing just because the defense has done so well at times, and the offense has kind of just ruined it for them. But I think if you're looking at this game, Tulane's for sure the more consistent team, even though there's only one game separating their records. I think we're... Still thinking back to the to the loss against, I want to say it was Michigan for Cincinnati, where the defense played phenomenally well, and we just keep waiting to see a team if they're able to keep up with Michigan. Why aren't they able to keep up with some of the teams in the AAC? And hopefully, this is a game against Tulane, and maybe maybe we see that. 
Uh, you brought up Tulane. I do think that they are the most, the more consistent team this year. The option has really flourished with Banks under under center for them this year. For Cincinnati, they're coming off a of bye week, so they do have some time to prep for this. Um, but also, a loss here will knock them out of uh, bowl eligibility, which I think coming into the season, we thought that they, you know, they would be sitting somewhere around, but around the five win mark, you know, flirting with bowl eligibility. But I also don't think that we thought that at this point in the season they would be two and six. Right, but I think their path towards well, their path towards bowl eligibility is clearer than Tulane's. If they can find a way to beat Tulane, their next three games are Temple, ECU, and UConn. And if you look at our power rankings, you can see where those three teams are. So not saying that it's going to happen, but if <laughs> there's really not an easier path to get to ball eligibility. Can't argue that. I mean, you just said it. Those are the bottom feeders over the conference. So you can pull those off and you're there. Obviously, I think that's going to be a little bit of struggle just because of what we've seen from them. But let's dive into that very last game for the conference. I don't know if the schedule makers knew when they came out with this that this would be basically the AAC's game of the week and it would be the only night game, and it is on ESPN2. And that is the Knights on the road at SMU. I really... Okay, let me put it this way. Maybe I'm bigger on SMU than a lot of people are. It's maybe because I really, really, really like Cortland Sutton. And I have really grown to Trey Quinn in the past couple of weeks, which also means, I guess, that I like Ben Hicks. So, in my eyes, being the home team and being a 14.5-point underdog, I don't care who it is. Even if it is UCF, who's been dominating everybody in this conference, and we've made all these arguments how we feel like they should be higher. But SMU, I think, is a team that has the firepower to keep up with a team like USF, it's really going to come down to, and it's been the case all season long with the Mustangs, is can their defense make enough stops to potentially keep up with UCF and stun everyone? Yep, and the defense is the problem, unfortunately. So I think that's where you get the 14.5 line because their defense has shown or hasn't shown that they can be consistent enough to keep up with teams. SMU can certainly keep up in a shootout with UCF. They might be just as equipped or even more equipped to do so. But it comes down to the defense because if the offense can't get going, because UCF defense is one of the better defenses in this conference. So if the offense struggles to put points on the board, the question is going to be, can you or can the defense stop UCF's offense? And right now the answer is for sure no because we haven't seen it yet. So I think that's where you get the fourteen and a half line. Like you said, it's it's a big number, but that's just how bad how bad and inconsistent the defense has been. I'm pulling this up right now just because of talking about this, I'm kind of curious to see what's the over in this game. That sounds like something that could be totally in the play. But you kind of just mentioned the defenses. We came into this year for basically for the entire conference, let's be honest. And there was two teams coming in this year where we said, hey, these were the teams that would be pretty well off defensively. And those two teams were UConn 
and Temple, and that has been anything but the case. Now, to flip it back to what we were talking about, I don't think either one of us saw that the Knights were going to have this great defense that has been able to do what they've been doing. You know, we keep talking about these huge numbers for UCF, and granted, yeah, I guess the offense has a lot to do with it, but it's also because the defense is doing its part. Right, and I think that's the biggest difference between these two teams. If you had the defensive success that UCF's having and put that on SMU, or I guess even just, just flip these two teams to their defenses, we might be talking about SMU in the same light that we talk about UCF right now. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's crazy just because of the fact, like I said earlier, I'm a big fan of SMU's offense. I mean, Trey Quinn catches 100 passes a game, and that's because you almost have to double Cortland Sutton because if you don't, he's going to catch everything himself. So that offense has been a blast to watch, and that's why I think that this is going to be more, maybe just because I'm hoping for some kind of fireworks. I don't want I don't want UCF to lose because I do want in the end they are that undefeated team. I want them to make that noise for not just for the conference, but just for the fact that the underdogs as a whole, as the whole website we do here, they should be getting a lot more love than they do. Uh, last year was Western Michigan that, you know, they got shafted for their opportunity to get in there. So I hope UCF does win this game, and then does their part. But SMU, as a team, we've talked about Chad Morris and you know how they're on the rise. I really do, SMU makes this a tight game to make a name for themselves as well. But on that note, do you really have anything else you want to add to this episode here? Yeah, we had some good things to talk about, but yeah, I think we're good. All right, I guess that's the end of this episode here. Again, make sure you're following us on all that social media stuff. Leave us reviews on iTunes or anything else that you're listening to us on. Until next time, please make sure no touchdown dances before you cross the end zone. That's a penalty these days.